message today. Let me uh, begin with a question for all of you. And so I want to ask, what is your least favorite Christmas carol? Not your most favorite. What is your least favorite Christmas carol? I know you've got some some uh, ones that just irritate you. Anybody want to just yell one out? You can just yell it out if you'd like. Hippopotamus. I didn't even know that was a Christmas carol. <laughs> Anybody else want to throw one out there? The Michael Jackson song, which I don't know what that is, but We Three Kings, okay. Anybody else? Oh, I forgot about that one. That's right. (laughs) Everybody's got Christmas songs that really just bother them. For me, uh, I don't like ones like Here Comes Santa Claus, just so syrupy and sappy and sentimental, you know. And then there's uh, the one, uh, Baby, It's Cold Outside. That's just creepy, isn't it? It's like, let her go home. <laughs> let the poor girl go home. That's just weird. For me, my, my, my favorite Christmas songs are, are deep and rich and resonant. Uh, the ones that really bring the, the depth of the gospel. And uh, so I want to just share with you one of my favorites this morning. It's called, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And this one was uh, based on a poem by uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And the song tells of Longfellow's experience on Christmas morning and a sorrowful experience that he had on Christmas morning. So he wrote it two years earlier. His wife had died in a fire. And he just got back from visiting his uh, son who was severely wounded in the Civil War, took the train back to his hometown, and he, and he steps out to uh, spend Christmas Eve or, or Christmas Day alone. And he hears the church bells on Christmas Day. And it just sort of reminds him of the sorrow and the sadness in the world. And here's the lyrics. He says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And maybe this resonates with you. You know, Christmas time is supposed to be a time of cheer and celebration and lights and things like that. But maybe like Longfellow, you're experiencing sorrow on Christmas. You know, maybe you're devastated by a broken marriage. Uh, maybe you're frustrated by politics and all the infighting among our leaders. Uh, maybe you're hopeless at work. You just, you're stuck in this job that just doesn't fit your gifts. Maybe you're brokenhearted over a wayward child, or, or maybe this Christmas you're going to spend, spend Christmas Eve alone. And, and, you know, amidst all the wonderful time of cheer, you know, this time of the year, you feel a lot of darkness. And if this is you, you're not alone. You know, studies show that there's a lot of people that experience a lot of sorrow this time of year. Uh, we even call it the holiday blue, you know, because there's a lot of depression statistically. Uh, this time of year. And, and so the question I want to ask this morning is, what do we do with this darkness? I mean, on Christmas time, as you're sensing the sorrow, if that's you, what do we do with this? How do we deal with the darkness? And that's the question I want to be asking this morning. Now, this past week, I, I came upon a, a recent op-ed in the New York Times by a woman named Tish Harrison Warren. And she's an Episcopal uh, priest, and she, uh, she writes about this. And she says, you know, a lot of time at Christmas, during Christmas, you know, you're tempted to numb yourself from the pain or maybe turn away from the pain or distract yourself from any sorrow that's in, in your life. But she says, I want to encourage you to do something different. 
The title of her uh, op-ed in the New York Times, it says, do you want to get into the Christmas spirit? She says, face the darkness. And so she begins the article like this. She says, for Christians, Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth, that light has come into the darkness. But in the weeks before Christmas, that's Advent, that's what we've been celebrating over the past several weeks. She says, in the weeks before Christmas, Advent bids us first to pause and look with complete honesty at that darkness. So she says, so she says before the celebration, before Christmas Eve, she says, Advent teaches us to pause and look square in the face the darkness that we see. And then she goes on and she says, uh, American culture insists that we run at breathless pace from sugar lay celebration to celebration. We suffer from a collective consumerist mania that demands we remain optimistic, shiny, happy, having fun, fun, fun. At this point, I begin to really like this article. She goes on, the tyranny of relentless mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often ironically feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from holiday blues, and I wonder whether this phenomenon is not made, made worse by the incessant demand for cheer. So what does she tell us to do? She goes on and she says, uh, you know, I'm all for happiness, joy, eggnog, corny sweaters, and parties. But to rush into, the, into Christmas without first taking time to collectively acknowledge the sorrow in the world and in our own lives— seems like an inebriated and overstuffed practice of denial. The very last paragraph, she says this, we need collective space as a society to grieve, to look long and hard at what is cracked and fractured in our world and in our lives. Only then can celebration become deep, rich, and resonant. Not as a saccharine act of delusion, but as a defiant act of hope. So she says we need to look long and hard at Christmas time at the cracked and fractured nature of the world and of our lives. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take some time to do what Tish Warren wants us to. I want to take some, some time, I want to make some space to face the darkness. I want to look at the cracked and broken world that we live in and take some time to grieve that. And we're going to do it by looking at Matthew chapter 2. So uh, Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 13 13 through 26 and, and I wonder if you've ever noticed that when you look at the Christmas stories like there is a lot of uh, Brokenness and a lot of darkness in these stories, you know, we often think of them as like these sentimental, you know, almost saccharine uh, Children's stories, you know with the, the baby in the manger and the angels and the cows and the sheep and all that You know and but, but what I want you to see is that there's a lot of darkness in these stories there's a lot of brokenness in these stories. As you look around the, the, the Christmas narratives, you see a lot of people going through deep darkness, just kind of clinging on for dear life. And that's what we have in, in this story that we're going to look at this morning. This is the first cri Christmas, and I want you to see that the very first Christmas began in the dark. Right? All was not calm, all was not bright. This is a very gritty, deep, and dark story, and it's going to really help us to kind of do what Tish wants us to do, and that is to make space to lean into the darkness. And so let's just go uh, verse by verse through the story. This begins in verse 13, and it begins like this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. So the story begins with the royal family fleeing to Egypt. Now why is this? It's because of Herod. And if you weren't here last week, uh, we got to kind of set the stage here. Herod was the king of Israel at that time, the king of the Jews. And uh, he was a, a, a terrible, brutal leader, uh, very, very paranoid and insecure of his own power. And so he was bent on destroying any threat to his throne. Uh, uh, history tells us that Herod uh, killed uh, members of his own family. Uh, he killed his favorite wife. Uh, he killed uh, members of his own court because he thought that they were threats to his throne. At the end of his life, when Herod was on his deathbed, uh, he was so paranoid that there would, there would be rejoicing at his death that he summoned all the leading citizens of Israel to the palace. And then he had them all executed to ensure that there would be weeping and mourning at his death instead of dancing in the streets. So this is the kind of guy that Herod was. And he's after Jesus because, of course, Jesus uh, is a threat to his throne. And so Joseph is, uh, is warned in a dream to flee uh, the uh, terror of Herod. He flees to Egypt, which was a place where a lot of Jews at that time sought political asylum. And I'm sure, you know, as you put yourself, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of Joseph. Imagine what it would have been like to be him at this moment. I'm sure he's grateful for being warned in a dream, but imagine how confused he must have been. You know, this is not the way things are supposed to turn out. You know, Joseph, he was told in a dream earlier by an angel that he was going to have the Messiah, you know, that he was going to be the, the father of Jesus who would save the world, and he's probably anticipating great things ahead. This is not the way things are supposed to go. He was confused. He was asking, why is this happening? I don't understand. He's being forced out of his homeland. Now, in that day and age, uh, people ne hardly ever left the city where they grew up in. And here he's being forced out against his will. And, and maybe you can relate to Joseph this morning. You know, maybe you're being forced out of a job. You didn't want to be forced out, but they're, but they're, they're saying, we don't need you anymore, and so against your will, you're, you're in a place that you never thought you'd be in, and you're asking why. You're confused. Or maybe you're being forced out of a marriage. You thought things were fine, and then you got the papers, and you said, God, well, this is not the way I imagined my life going, and I don't understand. I've done all the right things, and I've, I've obeyed you. Why do bad things happen to people that are faithful and righteous? Maybe you're being forced out of a, uh, out of a life of, of normal health. You know, you've, got th you've been diagnosed with a chronic illness, and, and this is not the way you expected life to go, and yet you were forced out of this health into a life of medicine and doctor's visits and things like that. You know, a lot of us can relate to, to Joseph here this morning, I think. And so he sets off confused on the donkey with his family to take refuge in the land of Egypt. And, and then we'll move on to verse 16, where things uh, move from bad to worse. So meanwhile, uh, back in Bethlehem, it says in verse 16, uh, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So uh, back in Bethlehem, uh, Herod sends his soldiers to this little town. 
And he tells them, I want you to kill all the male infants under the age of two. And so there's slaughter. In fact, this story is often called the slaughter of the innocents, where these babies are killed. Now, at this time, Bethlehem was not a big metropolis. This was a small town, probably smaller than the city of Batesville. And so scholars estimate that probably no more than 20 little boys were, were killed at this time. But still, it's a tragedy. And you know that even in a small town when tragedy strikes, it's like the devastation is, is felt even stronger. You know, imagine this whole city is, is rocked with devastation. And we know that uh, Herod, this, this power-hungry, domineering leader who slaughters innocent people, uh, you know, this is, he's not the only one that's ever done this in human history. In fact, this is not the last time that we will see a slaughter of the innocents. One commentary I read said that in the 20th century alone, we've seen two world wars and six major acts of genocide. And so in this world uh, where Jesus was born, we see that there is genocide and, and man maniacal rulers that are slaughtering innocent people. You see, the darkest that human beings have to offer this world. We see the immensity of pain that can come on innocent people because of the sin of terrible dictators. And we're reminded of the deep darkness of the world we live in. Well, the story goes on, and it says that, that there was great weeping in the city, Rachel weeping for her children. Now, Rachel, she was a matriarch, and her, she uh, died in childbirth. And she became sort of the, the, the patroness of all the suffering children in the world. And so this is kind of a, just a symbol of the, the lament and the mourning, not only for those babies in Bethlehem, but for babies uh, that have been slaughtered in genocidal acts throughout human history of tragic events where innocent people are killed. Verse 19, the story goes back to um, Joseph, and it says, When Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph again in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in, in a place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, being warned in a dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And so Joseph uh, goes to return to his hometown, Bethlehem. But again, he's warned in a dream. The angel says, don't go back there. And so he's turned aside to a city called Nazareth. Now, w w we think of uh, Nazareth as kind of just a, near a nearby city to Bethlehem. And it was. It was like Cave City to Batesville. But you need to know that for Joseph, this was miles away. Remember, uh, people didn't leave their hometown. And so here Joseph is uh, being told, you've got to go somewhere new. And you've got to start all over again. And some, some of you know what it's like to, to re relocate, you know, to go somewhere brand new, or you need, to, you need to start your life all over again. New friends. Uh, you've got to drum up new business. Uh, Joseph has to find business for his carpentry. You've, he's got to find a new synagogue and, and a place to worship. And remember, they just had a baby. Some of you who just had a baby, you know how chaotic life is. When you have a child and there's diapers and sleepless nights and you feel like the rug is torn out from underneath you and life is already, already chaotic for him. But here it gets more chaotic as he becomes homeless and he moves to this new place to start all over again. 
And maybe you feel that way this Christmas for whatever reason, you feel displaced. You feel homeless. You feel like your life is spinning out of control for whatever reason. And your, your life feels a lot like maybe the Holy Family's life did back then at this first Christmas. And so here's the story, and, and I want you to see, man, the, the Advent Christmas began in the dark. All is not calm. All is not bright. And what do we learn from the story as we reflect on it? Well, we learn that the world that Jesus was born into was a broken world. The world that, that, that Jesus uh, was born into and the world that all of us still live in today is a world that is severely broken. The story of the Bible is that when God created the world, everything was right, everything was good. God, humanity, dwelled in creation, and everything was in harmony. But then Adam and Eve, they shirked the authority of God, they rebelled against God's good rule, and they, they sinned against their Father in heaven, and, and ever since that period, the world that we live in has been broken. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was a small but noticeable tear in the fabric of creation. And that's why when we look out, we, we see that things are not the way they're supposed to be. You know, domineering, you know, leaders like Herod are not supposed to take power. You know, innocent babies are not supposed to be slaughtered. People who are faithful to God are not supposed to be set on the run. The world that we live in is not the way it's supposed to be. It's sick and it's broken. And this is why so often we feel disoriented and confused in this world. Some of us, you know, we look out at our lives and we think, God, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. And the, 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 I would just urge you to look at the Bible. The world we live in is not the way it's supposed to be. And so this is the world that the Messiah was born into, and this is why it's appropriate for us to make space to mourn the brokenness of the world. Uh, Tish Warren goes on in her little article, and she says, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache our deep worldless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we, found, we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, and darkness. Advent holds space for our grief, and it reminds us, it reminds all of us, in one way or another, that we're, we all are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. And so what Tish Warren is saying is that Advent, you know, it, it, it reminds us that the world we live in was a world where Jesus had to come. You know, it was broken. It was in need of save. It is in need of saving. And so it's appropriate for us to make space, to lean into the darkness, and to grieve the broken world that we live in. Now, some of you are here, and, and uh, maybe you decided to come back to church for Christmas. You know, you haven't been to church in a long time, and you think, you know, maybe I'll come back, and I'll check out, you know, if there's still something in this Christianity thing, and you're thinking, this is the day I come back. This is the most depressing sermon I've ever heard. Is this guy a pastor, or is he the Grinch? You know, what's going on? And you're kind of just dipping your foot back into the waters of Christianity again to see if this is going to work for you. And maybe today is... is is kind of a strange affirmation because you know that something is wrong with this world. You know that the world that we live in, is, it just doesn't work. Something's not right. 
And maybe a passage like this kind of provides a strange affirmation for you. It's a, Christianity is not all sentimentalism and sappiness and saccharine, you know, positive thinking. Christians are called to look into the dark, real brokenness of this world. And it's appropriate for us to make space to mourn that darkness. And so if you're here this morning, and, and maybe, you know, as you look at all the Christmas lights and you go to the parties and, and there's so, you're just mourning certain things in your life, I want you to know that that's okay. And there's nothing wrong with you. In fact, there's something right with you. If you're able to see the darkness in this world. And someone says, well, what about joy then? <laughs> you know, what about cheer? I mean, aren't Christians supposed to be happy? You know, there, there actually was an article or a book written by G.K. Chesterton called Orthodoxy. At the very end of the book, he talks about joy. And he says this, he says, joy is our native tongue. We are most ourselves, he says, and we are filled with gratitude, praise, and joy. So what about joy? Shouldn't we be, you know, positive? And sh isn't there joy? And and shouldn't we be grateful? Well, yes, I think that's true. It is our nat native tongue. We are most ourselves when we can rejoice at the things that are right in this world. And yet, for people that are really seeing, who are honest, we must make space to grieve what is not right. And I don't think Tish Warren would, would disagree. You know, I don't hear her disagreeing with G.K. Chesterton. I, I don't think she's saying, no, don't ever be happy. She's saying that our joy is trivialized if we don't first face the darkness. And so take a good, hard, long look. Because before you can get the depth of the joy that Jesus brings, you must be honest and acknowledge the darkness in the world and in your own heart. Someone said, Advent summons us to take a fearless inventory of our own hearts and the darkness that we see even on the inside. Well, someone says, okay, well, how do we do this? We've read the story. We've made some space. So how do we, how do we you know, face the darkness without being overcome by it? Because there is the danger of, you know, seeing the story and then seeing the darkness in, in the world and in our own lives and just falling into despair and just losing all hope. How do we face the darkness honestly without being overcome by that darkness? I want to end with a few points here today. Uh, the points were coming. The three points were coming. Here they are. Uh, we're talking about facing the darkness, leaning in uh, to the brokenness of the world, and, and I want you to face the darkness with comfort. Uh, the way that you face the darkness as a Christian is you need to face it with comfort. And what I want you to see is that although there's a lot of brokenness in this story, there also is a deep, rich comfort because notice that as Joseph walks through and as Mary walks through this story and all these horrible things happen to them, I want you to see that God is with them every step of the way. Remember, Joseph had, had a Mary had a baby and Joseph was was told to be the father of it, and they, they told the name this baby Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And so from le leaving their town of Bethlehem and going to Egypt, from coming back and being warned and going into Nazareth and, 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 Nazareth, Naz Nazareth and all the darkness in this story, the baby Jesus is with them. God is with them every step of the way. God is with you in your darkness. 
as I, I imagine it as Joseph and Mary clung to the baby Jesus, they held the child that was God's visible, tangible expression of his presence. So here's what Christmas tells us. It tells us that even though our world is broken, God has come into this broken world in the form of Jesus. Gosh, remember that old song by Bette Midler? From a distance. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. God is up there, you know, there he is from a distance looking down at the broken world and just, you know, oh yes, I see you from a distance. That's just not right according to the Christian story because incarnation tells us that God is not watching from a distance. That God has come into the darkness of his creation. He has entered into this world and he's entered into the world not, not in a palace, not when things are going well, but, but into a major under the rule of a terrible dictator. Only Christianity says that God has come into his creation. God has come into the darkness. He is not immune to your pain. He is not untouched by your weakness. Where is God when things get dark in this world and in your life? He's with you. You think about God as being with you when things are great. You know, I got a promotion. God is with me. Oh, I got a new girlfriend. God is with me. I got a raise. God is with me. But listen, God is not just with you in the mountaintops. God is with you in the valleys. There's a story of Jürgen Moltmann, who's a, who's a Bible scholar. Before that, he was, a, a, he was a, a, a pilot in the Air Force in World War II, and he was fighting for the German arty, army. He was fighting for Hitler. And uh, his, his plane was shot down, and he landed, and he was captured by the, the, the Brits, and he was uh, put, made a, a POW, and he was uh, living there in a prison in a camp. He was not a Christian at that point. And he was just facing the darkness, not just of Hitler and the world. He was coming to grips with what he had done. And to make things worse, the, the, the Brits, they put uh, pictures of the concentration camps in, in the cells of the POWs who were caught. So he said, I just sunk down into despair. I just couldn't believe what I was doing and, and what the world had become. And he says, I just would, fell into deep darkness. But there's a chaplain in the prison that gave him a Bible. And as he read the scripture, he got hope. And, and here's what he said. He says, I didn't quite understand the Bible of the Old Testament, but he says, when I came to the story of Jesus, I found hope. He says, when I came to the story of Christ, when I read Jesus' death cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I knew with certainty, this is someone who understands you. I began to understand the assailed Christ because I felt that he understood me. This was the divine brother in distress who, distress who takes the prisoners with him on the way to resurrection. I began to summon the courage to live again. I seized a great hope. This early fellowship with Jesus never, or the brother in suffering, um, where, am, where am I? This early fellowship with Jesus, the brother in suffering, suffering, and the redeemer from guilt has never left me since. I never decided for Christ as is often demanded of us, but I'm sure then and there in the dark pit of my soul, he found me. Christ's God forsakenness showed me where God is, where he had been with me in my life, and where he would be in the future. The incarnation tells you where God was, where he has been in your life, and where he will be in the future. God is, is with you in the darkness. 
So we face it with comfort. Also, we face the darkness with action. We face it with action. Because the story reminds us that, that as, we, as we experience God's presence in our darkness, through the incarnation, we get a tangible experience that, that God is really there. That God is, is the suffering God, and he's with you in your trouble. But it also encourages us to go out and be the presence of God for others who are in darkness. You know, there are people in this world that, that are just suffering all sorts of terrible things. And they need to know that God is with them. And one of the ways that God becomes, a, the incarnation becomes real to them is, that, is when we practice incarnation ourselves. When we look out into the world and, we're, and we open our eyes to all the darkness. You know, a lot of times at this time of year, you just want to numb yourselves with cookies and eggnog. Eggnog? Maybe you, maybe you like that, maybe you don't. But you kind of go to parties and you kind of turn your eyes away from the darkness. But this story is saying, I want you to open your eyes to the darkness during Advent. Where are people in this world suffering? And what can I do to be the tangible presence of Christ for them? Let me give you some ideas. So you can uh, serve at our Father's table, shameless plug. Uh, there are people in the city that are in the darkness of hunger who have nothing, you know, we, we all go to our parties and we have plenty to eat, but there are people in this city that don't have anything to eat. Well, you can, you can be the presence of Christ for the, to them by serving them a meal at our Father's table. Saturday, you could sign up at the Welcome Center. This is a great opportunity to face the darkness with action, to serve people that are, are in need and, and, and at the mercy of this broken world. Uh, you can look around and, and find people that are lonely. Uh, you know, a lot of us have family around, but a lot of us don't. Are there people in your lives that don't have any place to spend Christmas? And maybe you could open up your home, invite them to a meal, um, offer them a hug when they walk in the door, and be the presence of Christ to them in their darkness. You can pray. You know, you can open your eyes, and, and you could see people that are suffering and in brokenness, and you can even name names before God and pray for people that are suffering this time of year. And so this passage is telling us that God is with us in our darkness and that he wants, God wants us to go and be G the presence of Jesus to others who are facing the same dark darkness. I want you also, finally, to face the darkness with hope. Because although this story is so dark, you know, the first Christmas, it's so dark, I want you to see that there is hope in this story. Because notice in the story that, that at the end of the day, darkness does not overcome the light. Herod wants to destroy Jesus. But I want you to see that throughout the story, Jesus averts the threat of Herod at every turn. God is leading him through the darkness and rescuing him from Herod. At the end of the day, Although the world is dark, darkness does not win. There is coming a day where God will come back to this world permanently. And he's going to make everything sad come untrue. What I love is in the story, uh, I want you to see that this evil dictator Herod dies and Jesus lives. And so what this means is that no matter how dark your life is, no matter how dark this world is, light is coming. God has made a promise that he will come back and he will heal the brokenness 
in our lives and in, and in our world. Now, someone might say, well, that's nice that Jesus was saved in the story, but, but what about, uh, about all the other innocents that were slaughtered? You know, Jesus wasn't slaughtered, but what about all these other babies that died? Well, that's a good question, and the story never answers that question. But I want you to know that, that Jesus actually was not spared because at the end of his life, the innocent son of God was slaughtered. He was nailed to a cross. And he was thrown into the darkness and he suffered all the pain of this world, sin and death. He carried on his shoulders so that he may win a victory and that one day we might live in a world that truly is a world of peace. And so I want you to face the darkness, but I want you to do it by, by leaning forward. Lean, live leaning forward. Lean into hope. Lean into the future. Light is coming. God will return. And no matter what it is you're going through, God has promised that one day all the darkness will be healed. You know, the story or the, the poem I read at the beginning, uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It's a, he acknowledges the darkness, you know, and he says, you know, the, the bells mock, you know, what's really going on in this world. But at the very end of the, of the song, here's the final stanza. He says, then peel the, peel the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. He's looking forward. He's mourning the world, but he's doing it in hope. Resurrection is coming, and Jesus' first coming just starts something in motion that he's going to finish at the end. You know, Advent, it means coming, and during the season, we, we don't just celebrate the fact that Jesus did come. We also look forward to the fact that one day he will come again. And so let's pray today. And, and if you're suffering this morning, um, just bow your head and, and we'll just pray a prayer that, that God would strengthen us in inviting a G, the presence of Jesus into our world, into our pain. We, God, we pray, Lord, that um, you would help us this Advent, Lord, as we um, come here today to church and um, maybe some of us are, are dealing with some pretty heavy things. God, I pray that you would be with, be with us, Lord. I pray that you would comfort us. I pray that we would know in a very tangible way that you are the God of incarnation. You're not watching from a distance, but you are the God who is the great high priest, familiar with all of our weaknesses, there to comfort us in our darkness. Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us, Lord, to open our eyes to see uh, the brokenness of this world. Give us action, Lord. Give us wisdom, Lord, to know uh, where we can step in and bring hope. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would help us to look forward to the time when everything sad will come untrue. Lord, there is hope in the darkness. And although the brokenness of the world is way too heavy for us, Lord, you have the power to heal. We thank you for this, and we pray it in Jesus' name.